Welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. I'm speaking with Shoyo Sato, an invertebrate biologist who just finished his PhD at Harvard. Shoyo is an old friend to HMSC. He's been volunteering at the Museum of Natural History for 15 years, since he was 12 years old. I wanted to talk to him today about that experience, what it has been like to grow up in the museum, how both he and the museum have changed and what it's like to look back on the time he spent with us as he steps into a new era of his life. Here he is. Shoyo Sato, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. You've had a close connection with the outdoors since you were a kid. What initially sparked that interest? Definitely my parents. My dad is an outdoorsman. He wrote books and articles about camping and cooking outdoors, doing product reviews back in Japan. My mom was also a very outdoorsy person. You know, before I was born, they would ride their motorcycles up into the mountains in Japan for a weekend and do camping trips out there. Ever since I was a kid, I spent a lot of time outdoors with them, either fishing or just going to local parks. I think my first fishing trip was when I was 13 months old. My mom would carry me on her back and she would be fishing. So I started from a very early age. It's all because of my parents. And it was fly fishing, right? It was fly fishing. Yeah. My dad is a professional fly tire. What does it mean to be a fly tire? A fly tire makes the lures that we use to catch fish. They can, you know, imitate other fish or little insects, or they could not imitate anything at all. Just something that'll attract the fish or appear as prey or an irritant or something at the yeah, exactly. surface of the water. It's a real art form. There are some flies that we call art flies, which are hmm. meant to be sort of framed and displayed rather than used for actual fishing. And so your dad did this professionally. Yeah, it sold his designs. We would go to symposia to make them. We talk to people about the flies, how to make them, the ideas behind what we make. You had described to me before, I just love this image of you going to these symposia with your dad and him talking to people and you sitting behind him tying flies when you were a kid. Yeah, it was sort of the labor back then. <laughs> for what labor. materials would you use to tie the flies? What does the process look like? We used a wide variety of things, both natural and synthetic, different types of feathers, primarily from chickens that were mm. dyed different colors, different types of fur. We also mm. had you know, synthetic materials like foam and mm. wigs. Wigs, really? Yeah. Oh, very cool. And so what does the process look like? So you start with a bear hook and yeah. some thread. You use a vise to sort of hold the hook in place so it's easier to work with. And then you use the thread to lash different materials onto the hook. and You just sort of build it up from the, from the inside out. 
And so this also sparked an early interest in entomology. Can you describe how that happened? Yeah. So as a fisherman, you sort of want to study insects to imitate them better in order to catch more fish. Because presumably you're fishing in the lakes and rivers and streams at particular times of year, and the fish are eating particular insects at the surface at different times of year, right? Yeah. So different species of, say, for example, things like mayflies or stoneflies will hatch at different times of the year. Yeah. And fish can be very particular about what they're eating. If there are you know, hundreds of these flies, then they sort of only go after that. I spent a lot of time looking at insects, trying to make better flies so I could catch fish. If I was going to a river, I would study up on what is hatching at that time. Once I get to the river, if I see something that I don't have, then I'll go back to the car and you know make it up on the spot. Would you ever collect insects and bring them back with you? And I've done that. I had aquaria when I was a kid and mm -hmm. collected tadpoles and aquatic insects and that kind of thing. I would collect the molts. So when these insects hatch, they leave their nymphal skins on the rocks mm -hmm. and then the adults will emerge. And I collected those skins and had sort of boxes and boxes of those. Yeah, definitely. If I'm not catching any fish, I'll look at the insects so I always had fun. It's yeah. sort of a backup <laughs> plan to catch insects and observe them. When you were tying the flies, what kinds of features would you try to emulate in your flies? A lot of it is size, color, mm -hmm. and shape. Those are sort of the main features. They're not super realistic. They can be sort of impressionistic imitations, and that's usually good enough. But yeah, mostly color, shape, size sort of throw in some semblance of legs, tails, if they have them. That kind mm -hmm. of thing. That's really cool. And then also fly fishing too. It's a very active activity. There's an art to throwing the line out into the water. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's sort of therapeutic in a way. Mm -hmm. And my favorite type of fly fishing is trout fishing, especially in the Northeast, small brooks, I'm trying to catch really beautiful small trout. And we're constantly walking upriver, so we're mm -hmm. never staying in one spot. So it's not, you know, this sort of typical image of like a lawn chair drinking a beer. With a can of worms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very therapeutic, clears the mind. And there's a lot of movement too. There is, know, yeah. Sort of every 10 to 30 seconds, we'll make a new cast and mm -hmm. we'll do a couple casts in one spot, then take a couple steps upstream, then hit mm -hmm. the next pool, always moving around. It's so cool that you grew up doing that with your dad and your mom. You moved from Japan when you were five years old to Cambridge. Yeah. And you've been basically in Cambridge. The yeah, whole, for 20, you know, ever since. 24 years. <laughs> Wow. So eventually you end up volunteering at the Harvard Museum of Natural History when you were 12 years old, which that's very young for a volunteer at the Harvard Museum of Natural History. Tell me a little bit about how that came about. How did you end up in the museum and how did you end up working there? I've been going to the museum since I was maybe seven years old or so. Mm -hmm. Basically, just to have an activity get me out of the house on the weekends, my parents would take me to the museum almost every weekend, I think. And 
on the weekends, there would be volunteers out in the galleries and mm -hmm. I would talk with them. I would bring in skulls that I found or feathers or bones that I found and ask them questions of like, oh, what is this? Like, can you tell me about this? And I met a volunteer, his name was Fred, and mm -hmm. he was the one who actually recommended that I join the volunteer program. And I was, oh, I was cool. around 12 years old. I think the minimum age was 14, but he had vouched for me to the head of the volunteer program. And so they let me in. <laughs> That's awesome. What kinds of activities did you do as a volunteer? Like, what did you start out doing and what was it like? My first gallery that I got trained in was the Great Mammal Hall. The first activity that I did was a skull activity where I would take out skulls of different animals, things like deer or beavers or mm -hmm. mountain lions. And just talk about what you can learn just by looking at the skull, what these animals eat, whether or not they're predators or prey, you know, how strong their bites are, where their muzzles attach, that kind of thing. That was my first activity. That was sort of like a safety net. I was just a kid. I felt nervous talking, especially with adults. And having a cart made it easier because mm -hmm. people would approach you. You wouldn't have to go in cold and strike up a conversation. So that was sort of my safety blanket, having a cart. As I got more comfortable, I preferred to ditch the cart and mm -hmm. walk around the gallery and talk about anything that the visitors wanted to talk about or anything that you know they were looking at. You must have gotten some interesting questions over the years. Yeah. Actually, a lot of the questions are pretty similar. People end up yeah. wondering the same thing. Some of the difficult questions, I think, were things like, did we have to kill these animals or that kind of thing? Oh, how, yeah. How did we get them? People are also, especially when I started doing volunteer work with the bugs, people were always like, oh, who would win? And, in a and you're fight? talking like the live bugs, like you would carry yeah. around live hissing cockroaches or, yeah. or you tarantulas know. or scorpions. Yeah. A lot of people, especially teenagers, would ask who would win in a fight, that kind of question. <laughs> What are the most common questions? You said that people tend to ask the same sorts of things. In the Great Mammal Hall, so there are these three big skeletons hanging from mm. the ceiling that take up the entire room. And people would ask what they are, whether or not the animals in the room are real, that kind of thing. Who are some of the more interesting people that you've talked to over the years in the galleries? There was one family a parent approached me and her child had a phobia of bugs and they must have gone to the hospital for an anxiety attack or something like mm -hmm. that. It's like an extreme phobia. Yeah, an like extreme a, yeah. phobia. Enough that their primary care provider <laughs> knew about it. And some doctor at Mass General told them to go to the Harvard Museum mm -hmm. and talk to the bug guy, which was me. <laughs> a doctor referred me and this family came to the bug gallery and asked to see some bugs and I took this family behind the scenes and showed the kid live bugs these live hissing cockroaches which are you know a couple inches long they're quite big and yeah he harmless harmless <laughs> but big yeah. a little yeah. can be a little intimidating yeah he ended up touching the cockroaches and he seemed to 
make a pretty big leap in terms of his phobia. That's really cool. I wonder how he's doing now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. How do you like it being referred to as the bug guy? Oh, I love it. I love it. There have been weekends where I would be volunteering in the morning and then say I would step out for lunch, walk through Harvard Yard, and people would stop me or like point and be like, hey, are you the bug guy? That's fantastic. You went to Cambridge Wrench in Latin, so you were just local that whole time. And then you went to college locally. And you continued volunteering that whole time, which was amazing. So tell me a bit about that transition from high school to college and studying biology. What was it like to work in the museum as you were in college? Did you start understanding things differently? I think it gave me a little more confidence, Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Sort of taking what I learned in class and applying it rather than something that I looked up online or something. But at that point, I'd taken my role as a volunteer, sort of as a person to help visitors interact with what's in the galleries. So mm-hmm. I didn't see myself sort of as a lecturer or anything like that. Definitely not as like an encyclopedia or someone with vast amounts of knowledge. Although having the knowledge that I learned in class helped, it wasn't necessary. I sort of tried to get people to look more closely at what's in the exhibits and form some personal connection with it. It didn't have to be a scientific connection. It could have been a personal anecdote or some gut reaction to what they were seeing. Something memorable. There's another person that I interviewed for the podcast, Brita Zemkis, who's at the Museum of Comparative Zoology. She also went to BU and also did the study abroad program that I did and that you did that had a major impact on our lives. So tell me a little bit about this tropical ecology program that you did at BU and how it influenced you. It was a semester abroad in Ecuador and it was an intensive ecology course. So basically the whole time we just studied ecology, a little bit of Spanish on the side, but mostly four classes, tropical ecology. and Although we were home-based in Quito, the capital, we took a bunch of excursions out to different environments, mountaintops, the coast, different islands, the Amazon, of course. And the first time I went was back in 2015, in the Mm -hmm. spring. I studied abroad there. I also had the privilege of being a teaching assistant for that course after I graduated. And so I went back a second time in the fall of 2016. Was this your first field experience? Yeah, it was my first field experience. Definitely my first time in the tropics. And it was indescribable seeing all of the things that we learn about in textbooks or on planet Earth and actually being there and seeing those things in person, feeling that humidity, feeling that sun actually touching the animals. So I can't describe how amazing it was as a budding biologist to be able to go to the Amazon rainforest, to go to the Galapagos and see all these animals. At that point, did you know you wanted to eventually be a scientist? Yeah, I knew I wanted to be a biologist since I was probably about 12 years old. And 
specifically, I knew I wanted to be a biologist at Harvard. So <laughs> because of the museum experience or because yeah, because of the museum experience. Wow. Did you know what kind of biologist you wanted to be when you were 12 years old or just that you wanted to be a biologist at Harvard? Yeah, just that I wanted to be a biologist. I wasn't tied down to bugs or anything like that at that time. So, yeah. As you're sort of advancing through your academic career and then you're doing the study abroad, what kinds of questions did you start formulating in your mind about what you'd want to pursue as a scientist? It varied. I was interested in everything from ecology and behavior to you know, taxonomy and systematics, how different animals are classified. I've always been attracted to classification. Knowing how things are related to each other. Knowing how yeah. things are related to each other, memorizing the names of different animals, like the hmm. Latin species names. Yeah, that for some reason always attracted me. So also in the semester, you go to the Amazon rainforest and you spend a month there and you have to do different studies. And while you were there, you learned a little bit about social spiders. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's a species in the Amazon, Anolosmus eximius, that is sort of the most social of the social spiders. And what do you mean I, by social? We have this idea of spiders being solitary animals, mm -hmm. where even mating is dangerous for these things. Mm -hmm. Sort of this classic idea of like the black widow. But there are a handful of species that work together. They will build webs together. They hunt together. Some of them will even you know, take care of eggs together. But yeah, the range of social behavior is pretty wide in spiders. But there are a handful of these sort of really social species. And one of them happened to be in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And I would see a bunch of their colonies, particularly at the big Saba tree, the one with the platform. Yeah, it's just this huge, gorgeous tree with these, they're called buttress roots that kind of come down like a cape. And they're like walls, essentially. And there are all kinds of things that live on them. And then there's a canopy tower It's built around the tree. And you can climb the canopy tower all the way up to the top of the tree and, you know, look at all of the incredible animal and plant life on the canopy. I spent a lot of time there, probably my favorite tree in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yep. um, but yeah, at the base of it, there were like a dozen or so colonies of these spiders. And yeah, I remember doing experiments with them, taking a spider from one colony, putting them into another colony, that kind of thing. And what would happen? They would accept them. They didn't push them out or anything like that. So. Okay. What do you think that means? A lot of these colonies that are in close proximity are pretty closely related. Mm -hmm. So it's probably all the same to them. And there's probably some sort of territorial behaviors are probably just overall generally reduced. I remember doing these experiments and sort of decided that that's what I wanted to pursue mm. in my PhD. So that's what I came, uh, that I applied to some labs that studied behavior or spiders in general. That's what I started doing my PhD on. While you were in the rainforest and this research station in the Amazon is like super deep in the Ecuadorian Amazon and they have satellite internet now, which is extremely slow and it's spotty. It's probably better now than it was when you were there. 
but this is when you were submitting graduate school applications, right? Yeah, so this station is super remote. It's an hour flight from the capital and then a two-hour boat ride, a two-hour bus ride, and then another two-hour boat ride. So <laughs> it's pristine rainforest, which is fantastic. I was applying for graduate schools while I was there. I did some Skype interviews in Quito, but I remember submitting my application to Harvard at the station in the middle of the rainforest with this really <laughs> spotty Wi-Fi. I remember hitting submit on the online application and the page just sort of stalling out. And then I had to refresh it. And then it said, thank you for your submission. And I'm like, did it actually go through? Like, is this okay? So yeah, it was a little anxiety inducing, but it, it worked out. And you applied to Gonzalo Giribet's lab. Tell me a little bit about how you connected with him and the work that he does in his lab. I'd seen his research in the galleries, of course, and his photography, but there was another volunteer who was a grad student in his lab. And when I was in probably junior year of college, right when I was starting to think about next steps, she recommended that I apply to Gonzalo's lab. And she's the one who introduced me. And so she's the reason why I'm where I am now. She put in the good word for me. Well, she just made the connection. <laughs> I, I think I owe her a lot, yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. And what interested you most about Gonzalo's lab? I mean, seeing his research in the exhibits was so cool that this professor, this researcher at Harvard was involved in communicating that research to the public. Yeah, I valued that in a PI. I think that's so interesting how this is a thread for you, right? You know, you are studying science, but your experience in the museum, from what I understand, has always made you want to focus a little bit more on working with the public and that science communication aspect of it. Because of my experience as a volunteer, I've always had this teaching or communication aspect to what I do. And it's affected how I give talks at scientific meetings and how I write papers and ultimately my career goals. I'm thinking of going into more of a primarily undergraduate institution where it's more teaching oriented rather than research oriented. But yeah, this vein of teaching has sort of run through everything that I do. just completed your PhD at Harvard. Congratulations. Thank you. You ultimately studied velvet worms, not social spiders. Tell us a little bit about what are velvet worms and what did you learn about them? So velvet worms are a very weird group of animals. They are very closely related to things like arthropods. So that includes your insects, spiders, crustaceans, centipedes, that kind of thing and also closely related to tardigrades or water bears. Which are microscopic creatures. Yeah, microscopic algae. animals that yeah. eat algae or even other microscopic animals. Yeah, so these 
velvet worms. I guess they sort of look like caterpillars. They've got stumpy little legs, two antennae, and they are very slow. They walk around on the forest floor. They live inside rotting logs and under stones. They require these sort of moist habitats to survive. How do they hunt and what's interesting about their behavior? The coolest thing about them is definitely the way they hunt. They shoot this slime-like glue from a pair of modified legs on either side of their mouths. <laughs> the stuff is super sticky and they use that to sort of ensnare other bugs and that's how they catch their food. They also use it as a defense. So if you poke them, they'll also sort of spray you. So you've gotten sprayed before, I presume. Yeah, a bunch of times. <laughs> What's that like? It's surprisingly fast. You uh -huh. almost can't even see it happening. You just poke them and then suddenly there's this goo on your finger. It's really sticky. It takes quite a bit of force to sort of pry your fingers apart. I can see how small animals can get caught in that. Seems like there might be some sort of technology that could be adapted from velvet worm slime. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything done with yeah. worm slime, but I think as like an adhesive, yeah. like that property yeah. of how quickly it can solidify and that kind of thing, I think is being yeah. researched quite a it's bit. It's being researched. Yeah, there are papers on the physics of the slime, like how it works, oh. the fluidics of it and everything. So. Oh, wow. That's super cool. Where can you find these things? In what part of the world? So there are two families of velvet worms. One of them you find around the tropics. So in the neotropics from Mexico you know, to the Amazon, you find them in West Africa, you find them in Southeast Asia. And then the other family is a Southern hemisphere, more temperate distribution. Mm -hmm. uh, you find them in places like Chile and South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. You studied basically the relationships and so what did you learn about the two families? Families are very ancient and they're tied to the breakup of the continents. So for I example, see. in one of the families, Peripatopsidae, which is the Southern Hemisphere family, you find them on land masses that were once connected over hundred million years ago in land mass called Gondwana, you know, a long time ago. South America, Africa, Antarctica, Australia were all joined together. And then as they split apart, the continents carried those worms with them. And the relationships within that family still reflect that breakup. How do you study that? A lot of the work that we do is we sequence their DNA and use those sequences to infer how closely different species are related to each other. And reconstruct these sort of tree diagrams to sort of represent those relationships. What kinds of surprising things did you learn from that? I've primarily focused on the other family, the tropical one. Uh -huh. And we sort of knew this before, but the taxonomy in that group is a complete mess. Basically, different species from around the neotropics were described in different groups based on basically body size. Oh, interesting. And it turns out that in one location, it turns out that the species are more closely related based on geography rather mm -hmm. than something like mm -hmm. size. So, Which makes a lot of sense because it's not like they're moving very fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These things don't <laughs> move at all. They're yeah. very 
poor dispersers. But you know, say you have an island that has three species of three different sizes. They've been placed in three different genera, but turns out, yeah, they're all more closely related to each other than to other members of the genera that they were placed in. And so this neotropical group is going to require a whole revision of the group. Is part of the work going to be looking at these genetic relationships and the ecology element of it? I would imagine that once you sort of understand the relationship, the next step would be to sort of understand how behavior reflects their relationship with each other and their ecological niches. All of these worms are pretty similar yeah, <laughs> in terms okay. of like their niche, how they behave. We're more interested in what's called biogeography. So mm-hmm. how these species got to where they are, how do we explain their distributions? So yeah. that's sort of more of the angle that we usually take. And Gonzalez Lab, they do this with lots of different animals, right? They do it with spiders, which is what you started out with. And what other kinds of things? Crustaceans? Our lab is an invertebrates lab. So we study all invertebrates except insects. (laughs) So that's just a huge amount of diversity. But the two main groups that we work on are velvet worms and harvestmen or daddy long legs. We also do, you know, of course, work on things like mollusks, other groups, but those are the two main ones. It's such interesting work that happens in there. There's still so much to learn about velvet worms. We don't know that much. We still lack some very basic information about them. So my dissertation was sort of studying them from multiple levels, from individual to interspecies, small to big scale. So my three projects were, one was the first published genome for the phylum. Wow. Yeah, their genomes are quite big. They're about 6 billion letters of DNA. The human genome is about three. Wow. So twice that of the human genome. That's crazy. It's easier to sequence genomes now, but the human genome took, what, 30 years to get sort of a telomere to telomere sequence. Yeah, it was quite difficult. It's really big and it's complex. It's full of repetitive elements, so these repeating sequences of DNA that make it really hard to assemble the genome. It just takes a lot of data. Another project was species descriptions. I described three new species from Western Australia. I worked on a genus called Kumbajena. Kumbajena means Bigfoot. Uh-huh. You know, these animals are less than a centimeter long, but they've got stumpy feet. And the three species that I named were Kumbajena curricula. These animals are found in patches of these relictual forest. So Australia was once covered by wet forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. then there was a drying event, and mm-hmm. a lot of that forest is now gone. You have this idea of the outback where it's just sort of desert. Yeah. And you find sort of pockets of these forests And some of these pockets are in Western Australia. There are these remnants of this ancient forest, and you find these old lineages of animals still in these pockets. And in Southwestern Australia, a lot of these pockets are 
primarily carry, which is a type of tree. So the name curricula, cola means inhabiting. Mm. So carry inhabiting is what. Oh, okay. Means. Yeah. Okay. So nothing to do with a college curriculum. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about the second one? The second one was Kumbajena tulbrunupensis. So tulbrunup mm-hmm. is a mountain. And because things are a bit cooler on mountaintops, since it's a little wetter, a lot of these forests are associated with mountaintops in higher elevation. And this was what we call the type locality for the species. So the first sort of specimen for that species was from that place. And so okay. we decided to name it after the mountain. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And then the third species was suggested by a collaborator and no disrespect, but I think it's a little boring. <laughs> it's Kumbajena extrema. It's the southernmost oh, okay. species for the for the group. <laughs> okay. Hey, maybe a little more memorable though. Yeah. Extrema. I, I like it. <laughs> what was the third project you worked on? So the third project, I developed a molecular resource to mm-hmm. help sort of sequence these velvet worms and do phylogenetic analyses. So reconstructing those trees. It was what we call a probe set to sequence ultra-conserved elements. There are regions of the genome that are sort of conserved across species. And so it's easier to say, hey, this section of DNA is homologous to this sequence of DNA in another okay, species. Okay, gotcha. That way we can sort of enrich for those regions. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to sequence the whole genome. We can just sort of selectively pull out these parts. What's next for you? In a couple of weeks, I will be moving to Copenhagen to start a postdoc at the University of Copenhagen. I'm switching to a completely different animal. I'm going to start working with microscopic animals, things that are a tenth of a millimeter long that live in between grains of sand, what we call myofauna. And I'm going there to sequence more genomes of these obscure animals. It's going to be my project there. What's different about these animals, aside from the fact that they're teeny tiny, and why is their genome interesting? So we actually don't know. This project is quite exploratory. We don't really know what we're going to find. But having genomic resources for these understudied groups is, I think, quite important, both for studies within that group and also sort of broader evolutionary questions sort of among animals as a whole. Yeah, so it's just a really exploratory project. Any result is going to be a cool result because we don't know anything. So I'm really excited to work on them. So compared to the velvet worm genome, which is twice the size of the human genome, a little bit more is known about them. You're starting with something completely new. That's really exciting. So can you tell me a little bit more about these things? What do they do? What's their lifestyle? Do we know anything except that they exist? So the main group that I'm going to be working on is a group of animals called Micronathozoans. They are very closely related to things like rotifers. Actually a pretty cool story. They were originally described from a single spring in Greenland. And that was the only one that we do for a while. It was originally described from a spring on Disco Island in Greenland. And then someone found what we think is another species on the Crozet Islands, which are close to Antarctica. 
So we presume that these are sort of polarly mm -hmm. distributed. But then a colleague of Gonzalo's contacted him. He's a specialist on environmental DNA. So environmental mm -hmm. DNA is where you take a water sample and sequence it, see what you can find. And filter uh, out all of the particles of stuff in the yeah. water and sequence that. Yeah. yeah. And then you can sort of search for your sequences in databases and try to identify what animals or what organisms you have that way. Yeah. Okay. And he had found really strong signal in the environmental DNA of these micronathozoans. And mm. it's like, hey, Gonzalo, look at this. Like, there's such a strong signal here. At first, we were skeptical, but last summer, Gonzalo went to look for these animals in France, in the Pyrenees, with Katrina Vorsi, who's going to be my new PI. And they found them in a bog. Wow. The mountains, following this yeah. environmental DNA sort of clue. Digging through the literature, we've also found records of these in other eDNA samples, things like from places like the Danube. You know, these things might be widely distributed and we just, you know, haven't seen them or wow. collected them. So really cool story behind these animals. Will you be involved in collection? We were trying to go this summer, but the station in Greenland is completely booked. <laughs> so oh. we didn't get to go, but hopefully next summer uh, we get to go collect. I can't wait to follow your work. Any kind of exploration is super exciting. Just so happy for you. Thinking back to your time in the museum, your experience as a kid outside with your dad tying flies, how would you say that those experiences, and particularly your experience as a volunteer at the museum, influenced you as a person and as a scientist? Purely pragmatically, I guess. I think I wouldn't be here without the experience I had as a volunteer. I didn't do research as an undergrad. And so I think this is all the time I spent as a volunteer, I think, made me sort of stand out in the sea of applicants. It's taught me so much from just looking stuff up because people had questions or from what I learned from the visitors themselves. I think that gave me such a, a wide knowledge base that affected how I think about biology and evolution, but also how I value teaching, I guess. Mm. Teaching is an important part of your work as a scientist and how it always should be. Yeah, I think even within our department, sometimes going to talks of other people, it can be pretty jargony. And even for someone in the same department, it can be difficult to understand. And I think we have responsibility as scientists to communicate what we're doing and give back in that way to non-academics, non-scientists. And I think that's something that's really important. And that's definitely something that I learned from my experience as a volunteer realizing that that's important and also how to do it, mm -hmm. I think has been a pretty big aspect of how I approach my research, how I approach the work that I do, yeah, being able to communicate that. And it's also, I think, a nice escape from mindless pipetting, trying <laughs> to think about these sort of broader things. Shoyo Sato, thank you so much for being here. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. 
Today's HMSC Connects podcast was edited by Eden Piacitelli and produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. Special thanks to the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology and to Shoyo Sato for his wisdom and expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye.